0: You're listening to Ithaca Now, WICV news program focused on stories in the Ithaca community. I'm your host, Beck Legato, and thank you for tuning in. On tonight's show, we're taking a look at some of the best art department has produced this past semester. WICV news correspondent Caroline Grass spoke with the Ithaca City of Asylum's newest writer, at the time, Dmitry Bykov.
1: Because now I am practically banned in Russia. All my uh, newspapers... And all my
0: are Correspondent Michael Memis talked to Isaac Schneider from Ithaca College Hillel regarding the incidents of anti-Semitism that occurred at Ithaca College earlier in the semester.
2: He had said he had found two swastikas, uh, pinpointed in into one of the posters that st- uh, was on the room and has been in the room for a long time. Former news director Hamadri Seth spoke to D E
0: A R at IC's co-president about accessibility on campus. It's very, uh, like, it's not accessible basically whatsoever, you know. And former news director Jay Bradley spoke with Cornell's director of labor education about the unionizing of the Ithaca Starbucks locations.
3: It is proven to uh, be something that is inspiring workers across the country.
0: You're listening to Ithaca Now. I'm your host, Beck Legato. Ithaca City of Asylum, an Ithaca-based all-volunteer group, provides asylum to artists from anywhere in the world who fear for their safety in their own countries, especially due to the nature of their work. Earlier this year, ICOA welcomed their 8th writer-in-residence, Dmitry Bykov, from Russia. WICB News correspondent Caroline Grass spoke with Bykov and Rachel B.A.D. who is the director of the Inyaldi Center for International Studies at Cornell, where he plans to work.
4: Since 2001, Ithaca City of Asylum, an all-volunteer group, has worked to make Ithaca a safe haven for writers and artists who are in danger in their countries for the work that they do. Last month, Dmitry Bekoff, Russian writer, poet, journalist, public intellectual, and outspoken critic of Russian President Vladimir Putin, became the eighth writer-in-residence at Ithaca City of Asylum, or ICOA, and will be working with the Cornell University's IUNAUTI Center in their Institute for European Studies. Rachel Beatty Rydell, director of the iNaudi Center for International Studies, explained the process of having Bekoff come to Ithaca and work with the university.
5: Now, this is a particularly interesting collaboration because so many different partners came together to make Dimitri's stay here with us in the Institute for European Studies possible that is that the Open Society University Network funded him as a, as a visiting critic and we partnered with the Ithaca City of Asylum partners here in, in town who provided a lot of logistical support um, as well to make him at home in Ithaca. And Dimitri's presence here on campus at Cornell is part of a larger initiative run out of our vice provost's office for international affairs that works with different scholars at risk, writers, visiting artists.
4: Bigov said Cornell proposed for him to stay here, and he plans to write a novel during his time here and will lecture students as well.
1: I can teach Russian and English, and uh, that's rather useful, because now I am practically banned in Russia all my uh, newspapers and all my universities are forbidden. Like, for example, the so-called free university created by Hassan Hussein. I'm blacklisted on all the federal TV. I don't want to feel myself a victim, and I'm not a victim, sure, being still alive and happy. But nevertheless, I'm a quite a forbidden person. Uh, so I have to teach in English, and it's a, a, a big luck that somebody in America uh, needs my lecturing about Russian
4: history. I asked Bekoff how he would describe himself, and he talked about how nothing can truly describe him. He said he writes for himself to help solve his personal problems. He gave one example saying that maybe the most frightening is belonging to Russia, which he said is now an international criminal. Since many of the issues he faces are similar to his generation and nation, he feels that is why he is read by many Russians.
1: Nothing describes me no fully. You know, I'm a poet, a writer, a teacher, a father, a lecturer, a driver, heterosexual, straight, Russian, white, Jew. Uh, there are no exact definitions for any person you know. I may be three times older than you are. And during this long life, I understood that there is not one single word which can describe me fully. That's the reason I'm writing a novel about the so-called multiple person, multiple disorder. Uh, because there are many people in one, usually. It's a mistake that when we're speaking about one single person, we think that um, we oppose one concrete Nation, name, and so on. There are five or six persons in each of us.
4: In the spring of 2019, Bekoff became ill on a plane and fell into a coma for five days. He recovered fully, but in an independent investigation from Bellingcat, they found that Bekoff had been tailed by the Russian Federal Security Service, or FSB, and concluded that there were striking similarities between Bekoff's illness and the poisoning of opposition figures Alexei Navalny and Vladimir Karamazov.
1: I never thought about my poetry as about powerful arm against terrorism or dictatorship. But as I see that it is banned, that it is practically forbidden in Russia, it gives me such a flatter feeling uh, that they also need me and they feel me really powerful. Otherwise maybe they would allow me everything. Yes, in Russia a poetic word is traditionally significant, and more than this, uh, such writers who can predict the future, and they can, as you see, they are not loved by government anywhere. In Russia, you know, power is somehow afraid of writers. Maybe they think we're magicians. And we are, really. We can predict everything. And more than this, we can influence events. I think only in Russia, written work is so significant
4: David Gaspari, Chair of ICOA, said he got involved with the program in 2004. He said Ithaca is one of three cities of asylum in the entire country, with Pittsburgh and Detroit being the other two cities. He said in the past few years, ICOA partnered with the International Cities of Refuge Network, who vet applications of writers and try to find cities that might be able to support them. Gaspari talked about how he got involved with ICOA and why he feels it is important to offer writers and artists a safe space in Ithaca.
6: In 2004, actually, a dear friend of mine died, and she had been a very good citizen and very engaged in the community. And as a sort of tribute, I thought, well, I want to do something useful. And some friends invited me to join the board of ICOA, and I said, Sure. And it's also a sort of, I think, it's a natural home for me, the, the idea of supporting writers and artists who, are, who, who aren't who free because, of course, we are about as lucky as we could be given where we live. I mean, yes, sometimes people have a Twitter spat against them or something like that, but no one is putting them in jail. No one is burning their books. So it's part of um, paying back a little bit of the luck that that we have. The truth is an
1: interesting, is, is an important thing. And being able to say the truth about what's going on and spread it, spread it to people,
6: that doesn't, that doesn't stop a roar. Uh, that doesn't make poor people better off immediately. But somehow I guess I'm just convinced that, that the truth is an important thing and that uh, people who uh, represent it and stand up for it are doing good in the world.
4: Beatty Rydell talked about the history of Cornell hosting scholars and the importance of having visiting writers and artists.
5: Cornell actually has a long history of hosting um, scholars at risk. In the past several years, we've hosted scholars from Cameroon. We currently have a visiting scholar from Afghanistan. Uh, We have had several visiting scholars from Turkey, and that's just in recent history, over decades This kind of program, often in collaboration with the Institute for International Education, has played a very important role in terms of thinking about intellectual solidarity with our colleagues around the world who are unable to do their work because of the conditions um, at their home university, and yet have such important insights to share and need to be able to continue doing that. And so Cornell University is not the only one. There are many universities around the United States that uh, take part in this process, and I would say that it's one of the important priorities and missions of, of our center, the United Center for International Studies, in terms of being able to provide this host hosting environment and intellectual
4: home. Beekhoff explained that writing in the United States in safety is less pressure than writing in Russia. He said he invents the plots of his novels in Russia and then writes them in the U.S.
1: In the United States, I don't feel the horrifying pressure which always uh, tortures me in Russia. You know, in Russia, you are afraid of every phone ring and of every knock at your door. You're afraid of any policeman who occasionally stop near your door. Uh, This fear kills any feelings, you know, that there is only one enemy which kills love. That's fear. Even hatred doesn't kill love, but fear is dangerous. That's the reason I prefer not to feel fear. And I love living in the U.S. even when I don't work there. I have many friends there, and I try to um, spend half a year here.
4: Currently, the plan from the International Cities of Refuge Network, ICOA, and Cornell is for Bikov to stay in Ithaca for two years. He will continue to write and teach here. The plan is flexible and could change, and Bikov said with how quickly the world changes, making concrete plans is foolish. Um,
1: Sure, I have plans. But you know... The most useless thing in the world, especially in such quickly changing world like nowadays, is to have plans. If you want to make uh, God laugh at you, tell him him your plans. That's the only way, maybe, to make him laugh now. Sure, I have plans to be back in Russia, uh, to take power, and to change the country drastically. Uh, But I'm not sure they're ready to be changed so drastically, and so maybe I shall wait for a year or half a year. Nobody knows. Uh, I'm quite sure that in the end of this year, Russia would be changed and there would be no Putin. But that's my poetic feeling. In reality, Putin can survive me. I hope it, uh, it won't happen because he's too old and I'm comparatively young. Uh, But who knows, to change Russian power, the system of Russian power, the vertical, the pyramid of Russian power, you must change the mind of the majority. I hope it will be changed soon, you know, because uh, the victory in war, or for example, the catastrophe in war, is a thing which can change your mind quickly. War is a locomotive of history. I'm sure that Russian mind will be changed. But I am not sure it will happen quickly. And that's the reason Russia will need
4: me. For WICB News, I'm Caroline Grass.
0: The repeated incidents of anti-semitism which occurred on Ithaca College's campus earlier this semester and is something that Ithaca College has witnessed in the past. The WICB news correspondent Michael Menas talked to the president of Hillel, Isaac Schneider, and shared about IC's Day of Learning that was organized to address these issues of anti-semitism.
7: On February 8th, Ithaca College Public Safety emailed Ithaca College students about a report of a swastika. It was scratched on a poster inside a practice room in the Whalen Center for Music, and came five days after one was found in Baker Walkway. I talked to Isaac Schneider, the president of Ithaca College Halal, about these incidents as well as his experiences as a Jewish student at Ithaca College. Okay, so first, I guess, could you talk to me about what happened on the day that the swastika was found in the tuba and euphonium studio? So,
2: um, it was last Tuesday. It was a Tuesday afternoon. I was heading down, actually, for some Hallel meetings, and I had a friend who's also in the tuba tuba euphonium studio he reached out and contacted me he was practicing in this in this space it's a practice room designated just for tuba euphonium and bass students uh, due to the larger size of the room although it's not locked he had said he had found two swastikas uh pinpointed in into one of the posters that uh, was on the room and has been in the room for a long time so i went down real quick grabbed the poster especially already a bit on high alert since the Thursday before, we had found that swastika in the Dew, in the Baker wall, uh, Walkway, which is, of course, connected to Waylon. I grabbed the poster, and, you know, I happened to have two halal meetings that night with different agendas, but we kind of just scrapped the agendas and talked about this and filed another police report, um, which goes through Ithaca City Police Department as well as campus police. And then we also filed a bias report through the college.
7: You said, the person said it was there for a while. Uh, did, by a while, does it mean a couple hours, a couple of days? Like, was it kind of hidden in the room?
2: So, I should say, the poster this was drawn on has been in the room for about three uh, years. um, Unmarked. You know, nobody's ever noticed anything. Uh, who's to say that it had been there for a day, or maybe it had been done within the past hour? We don't really know, but this is the first time somebody had noticed it. It, it was certainly within a few days, though. Okay,
7: and I uh, just curious, uh, are you the only Jewish person in the two euphonium yes, studio? Yes, yes. Okay, um,
2: and I believe same for the bass studio. But you know, this is a this is a very specific space for these three groups. Got it, got it. Um, and it would only be probably music students who know about it. That's what I've, i you told me. I think correct. So the space isn't technically locked, as in anyone can access it. Right? It's not like we have a swipe for a for a key card, but there is um really only online markings. So if you're not an active music student or somebody's in the practice room, there would be no outward indicator that this is a, a specific room that I would be in regularly or certain people would be.
7: You mentioned the Baker Walkway incident. Do you think there was some connection that the fact that it was connected to the music school and then obviously now it's happening in
2: a specific room that you were at? Uh, you know, a lot of people have asked me that. I really, I really could not... Tell you, I have no idea. It could be, it could, it could be the same person or the same group of people. It could be somebody feeling like they wanted the attention, or even kind of like they had the place to after the incident. It, I, I have no idea. Is this the su- first time
7: something has this like this has happened to you at IC?
2: So this is the first, um, first time I've had a swastika kind of directly pointed at me, or even seen one on campus. But it's not the first. Incident of anti Semitism. Um, my first day of orientation my freshman year, even before the first day of classes, the first day of school, my first day of orientation, we were like sitting on one of the fields doing these identity wheels as one of the mandatory icebreakers. We had been split up into groups of like 10, each with an orientation leader. Um, and the first comment, one of the first comments someone made to me was about being baked in an oven. Um, and, you know, nobody in the group said anything. The orientation leader didn't say anything. We kind of just all awkwardly stared at each other and moved on. And there were other students in the group who came up to me and apologized after because they had no idea what to do. But but that really, <laughs> as my in my first day of orientation, kind of set me up a little bit nervously that even the orientation leader didn't say anything, just kind of laughed awkwardly and moved on. Yeah, and
7: so this one was... To right to your face, but I'm curious, uh, the anti-semitism you faced during your time at college has been more to your face or more anonymously through maybe either when you weren't there or through some anonymous, uh, social media account or something like that? I think it's
2: definitely more on social media. You know, I, I rarely see things manifest in person or at least hadn't seen things manifest in person until recently, there, there is a layer of privacy in social media. You don't necessarily need to be using your own account. So I'd say it's definitely been more more based in social media than, than anything else. Got it. And uh, has your position of president of Hillel led to increased attacks? I mean, it is also hard to say. I, I, I think probably. Just I think if you're a visible Jewish student in general— you're, you're going to be more susceptible. And then as somebody who actively promotes Jewish events and you know, works in the chapel frequently and kind of is always, always talking about it and always connected in some way, I'm sure there's a correlation. But I think if you're, you're visibly Jewish in any way, whether that's working for Hillel or, or some other organization or you talk about it a lot, I, I think any of those things can, can lead to increased comments or discussion or anything how you've been treated
7: as a jewish person here different from at home where you grew up in the chicago area so
2: i grew up in north chicago um in a very very jewish area you know basically one of the most jewish areas in the country that was actually one of the reasons why my parents moved there they never had ever stepped foot in illinois before um so i grew up facing anti-semitism Yes, but in a different way than at college. And one of the reasons I came to Ithaca College was the Jewish community. You know, I I wanted to be able to have a strong Jewish community, but also not have the same ex- experience I had at home. So I think I was preparing myself for a little more anti-Semitism in general, just by being honestly anywhere else in the world than, than my hometown. But I think... What has continued to surprise me, or at least surprised me in my freshman year here, wasn't so much anti-Semitism, but was just, like, no exposure and ignorance. I mean, I had many people tell me that I was the first Jewish person they had ever met, and it wasn't malicious at all. You know, they were just just expressing that to me, and I guess I didn't realize that that was, like, the case for the majority of students, especially since we have such a high population coming from New York and New Jersey, I had assumed— that there had been you know, some exposure to Jewish communities, and I've just been surprised by that. And that's not necessarily a negative thing, just something I've noticed. And then, you know,
7: after the incident, uh, and even the bike walkway, there was a ton of people sharing this, sharing Kalal's story, uh, and then obviously yours, when you put out a statement,
2: uh, are you surprised with the support you received after? Yes, and, and in the best possible way. And it's not that I doubted people would take things seriously. I didn't think people would be so ready to fight for us. I I was a little afraid that it would be dropped within like the 48 hour news cycle. So not only am I like humbled and overwhelmed by the amount of social media support, online support from students, staff, faculty and the administration. um, I think that, you know, it's been less than a week, but the fact that people were still reaching out to me over the weekend that has not been the same in regards to other anti-Semitic events. There, there is something different here, and I, I appreciate that, and it it gives me and I think other people in the Jewish community a little bit of hope that it just wasn't you know done in by Friday morning. Do you think it's possibly due to or any of the responses
7: possibly due to it being such an obvious Jewish hate symbol like a swastika rather than something? Maybe more
2: subtle, or maybe something that could be disguised as something else. Yes, absolutely, and I think you know, I think that happens a lot, just in general, in terms of dim- discrimination. This is unequivocally something you can't deny that was racist and anti-Semitic versus things that might have happened that you know myself and other Jewish people might felt was was wrong, but it's hard for somebody in the out group to see this there there there's no denying it you know whatever the intent of it was there is only one meeting of that symbol um especially as a targeted attack so i do think that visibility is is definitely a factor in the outpouring of support we've gotten but nonetheless it is i mean i've just been flabbergasted and blown away now i did hear something
7: uh, that you had stuff that happened at your recital last semester with like possible attack, could you just talk about that quickly?
2: Yeah, so I'll I'll keep this vague because other people were involved in the Got attack it. for their and for their privacy reasons, but um, at my junior recital last semester, which you know is a pretty integral part of being a music student and being a music education student in general at this school, forty eight hours beforehand I had found that all 55 of the recital posters I had put up in the school music like 53 out of five, 55 of them had been tagged and marked up in some very disturbing way so I think for me personally this this attack this past week just speaks a l- just gets, gets a little closer to home it's not just the baker hallway incident for me it's not just this happening in a practice room. It's those two swastikas or those three swastikas found in two separate incidents in the past week, plus still kind of the shadow of the direct target before one of the biggest moments of my college career last semester. So it's really the combination that I think is scarier rather than than one thing.
7: This Monday, Ithaca College Hillel held a day of learning for the campus community from 10 a.m. until 6 p.m. It featured speakers from the IC community, I see Hillel, Cornell, and more. Over 300 people filled up Emerson suites. Correspondent Jay Bradley was able to record Anti-Semitism 101, which was led by Aviva Snyder, the campus support director at Hillel International.
8: Um, These are some of the anti semitic stereotypes we see. We're going to come back to this. So I just want to give you a minute to look at it. They incite the murder of God. That goes back thousands of years. where there's a the belief that the Jews were responsible for killing Jesus. Um, and linked to that in the, in the, um, for many millennia, there is this concept of a blood Bible that Jews use, um, blood of children for things like making masa. Um, there's, and then these are less, these are more like widespread and uh, disparate, which is like the loyalty that, you can't, you, if you're Jewish, you have a life to the state of Israel. You have a life to your Jews and not to the country you live in. Um, the Jews are greedy, um, that comes from many millennia of Jews, not being allowed to hold certain types of jobs. And we were forced into certain kinds of, um, you know, less, um, savory in that, in that context, in that culture, um, community where, you know, you would be a money lender or, you know, like essentially what we would call a loan shark today. That was the only thing that we could.
7: This seemed to be a step in the right direction, but as Isaac acknowledged to me, it is an uphill battle. For WICB News, I'm Michael Memes.
0: Accessibility has been a large subject of debate, especially when it comes to the best way to provide accessibility to people with disabilities. At Ithaca College, WICB news correspondent Madri Saith tried to learn more about accessibility on campus by talking to Danny Bishop, the co-president of Ithaca College's Disability Education Advocacy and Resource Club.
9: Let's talk about disability. Almost in a way similar to sex education, disability is a topic that everyone tiptoes around just because they're afraid of asking the wrong questions, or not sure how they can support or be there for those around them whose brains or bodies, or both, function in ways very different from their own. Ithaca College is known to be accepting of people with a range of not only identities, but also abilities. However, the conversation about diversity versus inclusion in Ithaca College is one I've had one too many times, and so I found myself asking, is the college's acceptance and their current measures enough for those with needs beyond the normal? After talking to some students in my own personal life who deal with mental and physical disabilities every day and their daily struggles, I decided to talk to some of the people who have these conversations surrounding disability on the regular to try to find out what they think works, what doesn't, and break down some of the misconceptions surrounding disability.
10: So our organization is called DARE IC, which stands for Disability Education Advocacy and Resources at Ithaca College. Um, We started in 2018. Um, I joined the team in 2019 um, at the end of my freshman year. And basically what we do is like we create a safe space for um, allies, those with disabilities, um, just to come together and discuss anything that's going on on campus, as well as like uh, learning new things. We we do a lot of um, like presentations and um, just like group activities together. Um, We also do like panels and we go to talk to classes. So I've talked to a lot of different classes, um, specifically education-based.
9: That was Danny Bishop, co-president of DEAR at IC, Ithaca College's only club dedicated to disability education and advocacy, while also providing a safe space for those with disabilities and allies. Ithaca College did not have any organizations dedicated to spreading awareness about disabilities until very recently. 2019 to be precise, despite having had advocacy clubs for other forms of diversity for many years, which was until Ithaca College students, Kimberly Cassisi and Ari Dombraski, who both felt out of place as students with disabilities, decided to make a change. So
10: they decided, well, if no one else is going to do it, we're going to start it. Um, So they did. And in 2019, we were awarded with best new club on campus. Um, And after that, we kind of just Evolved it, you know, starting to um, do more in classroom visits, we started um, meeting with departments on campus to discuss um, things that students have told us, as well as our own experiences, how they can make a classroom more accessible, how they can be more accommodating to their students.
9: And so is everyone who's uh, a member of the disability club, you know, someone with some sort of disability or are there people, you know, who are uh, who don't really have disabilities? Um, so we
10: are a safe space for allies and people with disabilities. Um, my co-president is actually um, an able-bodied person. Um, so we, we have multiple people on our executive board uh, that don't have disabilities, but we also have people that do have disabilities because um, we do think that it is important to not only like create a safe space for those with disabilities, but also to teach those that are allies how they can be allies.
9: As someone with multiple disabilities themselves, Danny found a space of belonging at the club.
10: You know, I'm a person with disabilities, and I've never seen like a a group um, that would like meet for for that. You know, I always grew up like being one of the only kids like, You know, um, I was always singled out all the time in classrooms uh, and such because, you know, I had disabilities and I felt a little bit like an outcast. And then I saw that and I was like, you know what, I'm going to go to a meeting and, um, you know, see what it's about. And they needed someone to do digital media. And I'm a CMD major. So I was like, this is perfect. Um, You know, I'll do their social media for them. And that's basically where I started.
9: Uh, what are your thoughts on accessibility in Ithaca College?
10: Um, so there's like multiple different levels of accessibility. Obviously, um, physically, it's very un- like it's not accessible, basically whatsoever. You know, it is on a hill, um, and there are uh, multiple elevators that don't work. There are a lot of doors where the the handicap button um, it doesn't work or uh, we had an issue my first year where they would uh, actually shut down the handicap button after 9 p.m. because apparently disabled people don't go out after 9 p.m. The routes to get to elevators, too, are extremely long, um, and it's it's just a whole mess that way. Um, but for otherwise, it's, it's okay, I would say. Um, SAS does a decent job at... Um, Giving accommodations to people, they're really friendly, and uh, they're 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 pretty easy to talk to for the most part. Um, but I do believe that the um, the college needs to start doing like training sessions with professors and faculty and staff um, because there are a lot of professors that aren't accommodating and um, you know go against people's accommodation plans, which is illegal, by the way. Um, so I feel like it needs to be addressed. Um, talking to the departments has helped for sure, um, but you know we need to take the extra step to like actually train these people to work with those with disabilities, um, to make a classroom that you know you don't have to like go out of your way to get these accommodations. The accommodations should already be put in place. Like for example. Um, If someone needs captions on videos, just always put captions on videos, you know, make it accessible in the beginning um, for everybody. Um, I don't know, just make it as safe of a space as possible. They have to learn that they've got a plan in advance um, because, you know, you never know what kind of accommodations people are going to need. And sometimes people can't afford to get uh, like a 504 plan. Um, because that is a lot of money to get diagnosed and um, to get these accommodations in place. So having those accommodations in place may help those who don't even see themselves as a disabled person.
9: I also asked Danny what she thinks about the work Student Accessibility Services is doing at Ithaca College. For those who don't know, SES is IC's official non-student organization that helps provide access to students with disabilities, whether it's academic accommodations, physical or residential accommodations, or others.
10: So I think that they what they do really well is uh, communicating with students. Um, they uh, usually keep up on um, whether we need a update on our accommodation plan. Uh, we always get an email every semester saying like, Hey, do you want to update your accommodation plan, um, etc.? Uh, they're really responsive, so you can get um, a meeting with them pretty easily. They're very kind people. Um, but I, a couple of the things that I think that should be changed is um, this is a like it's it's a small thing I I suppose, but um, they have you um, like. Do a, complete a form online every single time you need to take a test and you like if you need like extra time or you need to be uh put in a space by yourself with like low distractions um you have to fill out that form by yourself for every single test quiz exam etc um and a lot of kids with disabilities um or a lot of students with disabilities they forget that they have to do that so um you know, they run out of time and then they have to take their test with everybody else, which, you know, isn't really necessarily fair. I do believe that that should be on the professors and not on the students because they um, they they get your accommodation plan in advance. Um, you know, it gets emailed out to all of them. So if they see that you need extra time on these exams, they should already they should do that for you. That, that shouldn't be our job.
9: What would you define a disability as and what do you think are some misconceptions about disabilities?
10: For me personally I know it's different like case by case but I kind of umbrella mental illness with disabilities because it is disabling um to have like mental illness like depression um or anxiety you know BPD stuff like that um I I do feel like it, it can be very disabling um it can be disabling mentally and physically Um, so we always include those types of people in our meetings. You know, I, I myself, you know, deal with those things and I, you know, I see it as a mental illness, but I also see it as a disability. Um, also people like with autoimmune diseases, um, we definitely put them under there because it is physically and mentally, uh, disabling. Um, but you know, of course people with intellectual disabilities and physical disabilities come under that umbrella. Um, but I think the biggest controversy would be with people with el- um, mental illness, um, because some people disagree with the fact that it is a disability because it's not like, oh, like they're not autistic and in a wheelchair or whatever. Um, but, you know, it's it's a lot more than that. It's a lot more than like being in a wheelchair or like having Down syndrome or you know, something like that. There's so many disabilities that people don't realize are a thing. Um, because they're either like so rare, so little people have it, or they're just like not educated. Um, so, you know, that's where you, I think that education about I mean, disabilities in general is really important.
9: Join me next week as I talk to Ian Moore, the Director of Student Accessibility Services at Ithaca Colleges, about some similar ideas regarding disability and what his organization does to provide access to disabled students. For WICB News, I'm Hamadri Saeed.
0: In Ithaca, multiple Starbucks locations in the local area saw employees fighting for collective action and greater worker power by unionizing. To explore this idea on the local level, WICB former news director Jay Bradley spoke with the Cornell School of Industrial and Labor Relations director of labor education research Kate Broffenbenner to hear her thoughts on the movement going on here in Ithaca.
11: Ithaca's Starbucks locations have been in the news for a reason that's taken hold across the country in recent weeks. A petition was signed by 26 employees in Ithaca's three locations of the popular chain cafe, bringing them over the required amount to get a vote for unionization. Starbucks has released statements saying that they do not think a union is necessary, preferring direct communication between administration and employees. But according to a recent article by the Ithaca employees cited a lack of meaningful communication as a key reason to push for this effort. Other reasons reported as being cited by employees include the company's COVID-19 protocol, excessive assigned tasks, benefits, pay, and more. And it's not just Ithaca. Unionization efforts have taken hold across the country. The Ithaca Starbucks workers themselves took inspiration from workers at a successful Starbucks unionization effort in Buffalo. Other large companies like John Deere, Nabisco, and Amazon have seen union creation attempts or labor action take place among their employees over recent weeks, too, as the mid-pandemic labor movement has people vying for collective power at the same time that many others seek career pivots or resignations. To get a better sense of the moment, we spoke to Kate Broffenbenner, the Director of Labor Education Research at the Cornell School of Industrial and Labor Relations.
3: This topics campaign is a very exciting development in that it is proven to uh, be something that is inspiring workers across the country, especially young workers. The workers at Starbucks um, naturally are young, and they are—they're uh, organizing not for the you know normal reasons. They're organizing. Yes, they're organizing about wages, but they're also organizing around issues of um, they—they are—they're organizing because of. Uh, broader issues of how they f- they feel about how Starbucks has treated them. They're organizing about political issues. They're organizing um, about respect and dignity, and they're getting excited about Starbucks campaigns. At each time another Starbucks organizes, and, and one it's contagious. In one, one Starbucks organizes, and another Starbucks organizes, and it spreads from one Starbucks to another.
11: Yeah, and I mean, haven't we seen something similar to that in the Amazon warehouses in the last about two years? When uh, the first one, I believe it was Alabama that had the first unionization vote, and then others started to have, uh, you know, similar initiatives throughout the country. Is that correct?
3: And this happens, this happens in all movements where, you know, workers, workers think it's not possible and they are afraid to challenge an employer or they're afraid to challenge um, a leader, and then they see that um, one group of workers do it, and they think, oh, you can challenge the boss, and and then they get the courage to do it themselves.
11: Yeah, and, and what kind of, uh, do you think, are the conditions that have changed in the last few years uh, that have started to bring labor back into the forefront, bring union organizing back into the consciousness of uh People at these sort of jobs.
3: Well, we had several things happen. First of all, the um, the Wall Street um, and the, saw that you know people in general started to distrust corporations more when they they saw that you know things were tough and the top the distrib- dis- wealth distribution got more skewed and. But COVID played a huge role, which is here, where here everyone was making sacrifices. People were risking their health and their lives, and they saw that the uh, the those who were wealthiest and the corporate corporations were sacrificed not not just sacrificing less, but actually were making huge profits at the at, at the expense of all the rest of society and workers. Particularly, uh, service workers, uh, essential workers, including your Starbucks workers and Amazon workers, who were you know, feeding us, uh, supplying us with essential supplies, risking their lives, um, were, um, were being expected to make great sacrifices. And when they asked for health and safety protections, when they asked for the right to organize they were being slapped down um and and they had enough some quit and some decided to stand up and fight back and organize a union
11: yeah so is this are these sort of actions really only being seen in the kind of more i i guess people would refer to them as entry level service positions or like uh warehouse jobs or is this being seen or or similar or different uh, things being seen in more kind of white collar sphere. I know there's uh, so many articles have been published about the Great Resignation. Tell me about how these things connect.
3: See museum workers organizing. We see teachers going on strike. We see um tech workers organizing. You know, we have media journalists organizing <laughs> and striking. This is happening across the board. When well, we've had more digital media workers organizing media workers organizing than ever before so no this is happening across the board
11: and with what you see right now how do you see this shaking out in about a year or two years do you think this will be a trend that continues or do you hope to see that
3: well we've had it we've had the a strike wave and uh, you know spikes are going up and we have organizing go up but you know these things can also fizzle out it's really, it's really up to the labor movement to take advantage of this and build on it and do the right thing, and 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 workers to um, keep standing up. And it also depends a lot on the economy. I mean, we just had today a, a war breakout in um, Eastern Europe, and wars, you know, the et- entire economy can change when war mm-hmm. happens. So. There are many variables.
11: And what are some of the main goals and objectives you've seen different labor organizing movements uh, kind of strive for uh, over the last few years?
3: The American labor movement is very diverse. It goes from the, you know, we have building trades all the way to entertainment unions. So, you know, we've had some big changes. The labor movement has, you know, united with Black Lives Matter and the immigrant rights movement. And my hope is that the labor movement is going to become increasingly a social justice movement and an environmental movement. Um, It's going to become a global movement because only when the labor movement sees itself as part of a, a, you know, a global social justice movement that uh, understands that it can all, it only when it sees um the, the rights of all workers worldwide will it become will it be able to really organize and grow? And that some its strength lies in it seeing itself as something much bigger, um and and focusing on the rights of all workers.
11: And is there anything else about uh especially regarding uh unionization in Ithaca, like how how difficult is it to get something moving? Because I know they've said it'll take a few months at least to get uh, a union actually like approved and and kind of codified. Like, what is that process generally like?
3: Well, you know, there's the legal process and they're starting to act like a union and the workers and the union can start acting like a union right away. And so you can start, um, you can start building power in the workplace and starting to take action. Um, you don't have to wait for that. So I think that, and you know, that's what the workers at Starbucks did in Buffalo, and I think that they can start doing that, you know, sooner. Um, they're part of, you know, the workers, Starbucks workers are gathering from all across the country together. They're uniting, they're building their power, and those Starbucks workers in Ithaca are part of a bigger movement, and they can, they don't have to wait till they have a signed contract for that.
11: All right. Is there anything else you? think is really important for people to know to touch on regarding these issues.
3: We have a strong labor tradition in Ithaca. the Conference Cortland Labor Coalition that was founded here and you know more than 30 years ago has you know worked to help workers for a long time the worker center here I think there uh, people should support the worker center and students should students can get involved and and, and support it and learn more about it both at Ithaca College in Cornell, and I think that there's a lot to do and learn to get involved.
11: That was Kate Benner, the Director of Labor Education Research at the Cornell School of Industrial and Labor Relations. The vote for whether or not Ithaca's Starbucks will form a labor union will take place at a later date. For WICB News, I'm Jay Bradley.
0: For tonight's edition of Ith Canal, you can listen to all of our stories on WICB.org. And if you'd like to listen to past shows, follow WICB on SoundCloud and subscribe to Ith Canal to hear this show anywhere, anytime. Also, make sure to subscribe to the latest to hear our daily newscast every single weekday. Just search WICB News Presents on your favorite podcast app. For more content throughout the week, you can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, all at WICB News. This show wouldn't happen without the support and assistance from Manager of Television and Radio Operations Jeremy Menard, WICB Station Manager Connor Hibbard, and Programming Director Harrison Kona. Thank you. Ithaca Now is produced by News Director Hamadri Saith, with assistance from News Managing Director Jordan Birking, News Production Director myself, and Social Media and Web Coordinators Emma Kirsting and Inbayani Amverison. All of the music from our show's intro and outro comes from Dr. Dundiff of Louisville, Kentucky. Have any feedback, story ideas, just want to say hi? Feel free to reach out by emailing news at wicb.org. We will be back with a full episode of Ithaca Now at 7pm next Sunday.